This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations of people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their safe spaces, their bubbles around the world. I'm Sammy Mann. At, I am at Otago Polytechnic today and I am joined by Anna Carr. Kia ora, Anna. Morena Sam. How has your bubble life been? It has been very interesting actually. How far back do you want to go? Right back to the start. Right back to the start, the sudden lockdown. Um, it was probably a little bit of pre-preparedness prior to the bubble happening because we were watching what was occurring overseas. So whilst we didn't panic shop, we were sort of thinking of plan A, plan B with who was going to be in our bubble because of our grandchildren here in Otipoti in Dunedin and what would happen logistically with them. And an elderly father up in Twizel who I was quite concerned about, in the end we ended up having three separate bubbles because of how the initial cases um occurred with the Dunedin concerns and my father didn't want us to go to Twizel, we didn't want to come here. So the initial bubble was um, very abrupt for us in terms of a transition, but my partner and I had office spaces and basically we were so busy with work that we probably didn't notice what was really happening. Um, Really loved being able to spend time with our pets at home and in the garden when we were in that alert level four phase and amongst all the teaching via Zoom and learning all the new multimedia. It was interesting all those family decisions, all the decisions about locations and things that got made quite quickly, Mm. like in the 24 hours or things, and then people were stuck with them for six weeks really. It was interesting, but I think particularly for the, I, I keep coming back to the fact that I think the people who did it the hardest were the uh, the first year, first year tertiary, the ones that had just left home, mm. really had to make decisions Definitely. about what they were doing. Yeah, and I look at it, and I was really enjoying teaching my third year ecotourism class, and probably a third of the class were from North America or Southeast Asia or Europe. And we probably lost a third of them out of our even Aotearoa bubble because they were called back home. They were exchange students. Right. And they continued via the online bubble, but it was very strange because you sort of had to help them through the study as they went through LA airport and ended up being stranded at LA and not able to get Ford flights to their home destinations, things like that. So I'd be you know, talking to students who were having two or three nights in a really uncertain 
situation in terms of how the pandemic was unfolding as uh, heading back to the east coast of North America and so on. But in the end, everyone finished the course, thank goodness. So it sort of, you know, went from early March to late May, but the class hang together online. So you had a class that ended up being... Dispersed. Dispersed. Globally. It would have made it easier to talk about ecotourism because you're demonstrating sort of an eco way of connecting at least. That was absolutely fascinating. And of course, you know, a lot of them were going back to areas such as New York State where the pandemic was rife. And here we were in Dunedin on glorious autumn days, being able to look outside at the town belt and maybe go for a walk at the end of the day or during the middle of the day, as long as we were close to home, to get outside, whereas they were very much housebound. So I had some students who were in their basements of their family homes and not able to actually see their family members till they finished self-isolating. So it was a little bit grim in that way. I just saw on this, this morning on Facebook a post from a friend in Lancaster in the UK. Now she's in Preston. Her under five-year-olds, first time they'd left the house in 14 months, first outing yeah. in 14 months. They went, I don't know if it was just to the local park or further, to, to buy an ice cream. Mm-hmm. That's such a long time for... To be housebound. Yeah. And, you know, my biggest concern, I suppose, when you look at it from a family perspective, we have a family member in Manchester who had gone over there to study for a PhD and, of course, was very new and the majority of that PhD study has been in isolation or been away from campus. So to be on the other side of the world, the anticipated return halfway through isn't going to happen, potentially. Um, I think there's a... You know, we've got the positive side here in New Zealand where we've got freedom, but really our interlinking bubbles mean that we're conscious of how everyone else is still being affected. And of course, we've got a lot of Indian students at the moment who are really, really concerned. So our bubbles keep on sort of dissolving and growing. Let's take the first of your music choices. Let's have Poye. Party Maori Club, why this one? Ah, okay. So I have Papa to Nati Roanui, and my um, father's family are from Hawara and Normanby, and my mother's family um, shifted into Taranaki way back in the 50s. So, in a way, it's kind of like a homecoming. We always used to drive through Patea. Dad grew up up the road, and of course, that um, beautiful. Waiata came out when I was in my 20s and it's always stayed with me as something I really enjoy and it's uplifting.
teaching online what is it you teach uh, okay so I teach two third year papers at the University of Otago I teach ecotourism operations and in the second semester I teach cultural and heritage tourism management then I also teach a 400 level postgrad for our masters of commerce and tourism which is in entrepreneurship and small business development and alongside that I'm supervising um, PhD students and master's students who undertake research projects as well. And you did all of that, or first semester last year was entirely online? First semester entirely online, and then of course because of social distancing and spacing out classrooms and so on, we actually ended up in a little bit of online situation in second semester for a while with one of the classes. Uh, My 400 level class managed to be socially distanced and still face to face but I suppose that was the biggest learning curve for everybody was the recording of lectures and adapting to Zoom so yeah it was an interesting one because I'm definitely a, I like to work with my students around desks and getting outside with practical um, examples of what we're doing and 
be interactive rather than talking to a computer. So yeah, no, it worked. I think I'm just amazed by how quickly everybody adapted it to going online, really. And we're lucky, I suppose, I'd had situations where I was supervising overseas students, so I was used to communicating via various, you know, like online platforms, usually Skype, so it wasn't completely alien to me. Yeah. I suppose one of the, thing, one of the things that it does is it really highlights the, the, the balance that we have to make between pure content and the, the engagement, because yeah. they can get the content in other places. Yep, it's the delivery. Mm -hmm. So, and it's also when we're looking at things like inquiry based learning or you're wanting to actually get involved with practical community related methods of engaging with assessments, that all goes out the window during lockdown. So, last year we'd been planning to work with ecotourism operators and um, organisations such as Oroka Nui, and we couldn't do the field trips. This year we got there, thank goodness, so that was great. Yeah, Oliver's third year geography, human geography field trip didn't happen. Yeah. They were looking at um, Airbnb in Tianel. Mm -hmm. And they had, you know, they had the big trip all sorted out and then they didn't get to go. Yeah. They ended up doing all the interviews and things by phone, which is it's a, going to be an interesting challenge for those for those learners or for those now graduates yep. who had quite a different experience. I wonder if it's going to affect how they think about their subjects, their careers. It's really interesting for those students who weren't with us for more than a semester because they're exchange students. I think it gave them a glimpse of what we have to offer down under in Aotearoa. And so they were taken home as a result of the pandemic and that call back to their countries. And I'm sure that many of them want to come back at some stage, maybe to be masters or PhD students. For our on-campus students, um, I'm really noticing more engagement with the third years this year. They really love being in class as opposed to learning online. They really want to be studying in the library, reading books, yay, which is a positive thing that's come out in terms of people's habits during lockdown. So that, yeah, that's great. But the other perspective is all the wonderful um, communities that we go into and the organisations that we visit uh, who we couldn't go and visit. And they're disappointed as well. It's not just the students. <laughs> so, yeah, I could imagine Tiano as a destination would have been looking forward to that geography field trip coming through, and it doesn't happen. It's a bit of a, a shame on both sides. Tourism, of course, has been affected probably the worst by the, by the closed borders. How are you seeing that, and how are the students seeing that? They're carrying on with tourism. Okay, Whew, that's a big one. Right, so we seem to have stable numbers, but our international students haven't been able to come in who've applied for our programs, and so they're often deferring, and we've got students who would want to do their masters this year who are deferring to next year because they just can't get their visas. They can't travel, and of course we know why, 
and so we have fewer numbers but there's still a huge demand. Our program's very much around visitor management and it has a diversity of papers but we look at it more from having a, a sustainable approach and I know that that's a very much overused word and it kind of makes me think of your sustainable lens program um, but where we have more rich engagement with local communities who want to host visitors where we have say visitors who want to learn more about the conservation the local values they want to be immersed in the community I think one of the big things that came out was how much New Zealanders loved traveling and really learning about their own country and having that opportunity and we needed to have that halt in the growing mass numbers in those hotspot areas. We needed to really evaluate, well, what sort of value are we getting environmentally and culturally from tourism? It's not just economic return that we're looking at. And that's something that the COVID pause, of course, they're talking about regenerative tourism, they're talking about transformative tourism now, and I was a little bit disheartened, I suppose, when the narratives start to turn back towards the economic benefits and not take in everything else that tourism can bring into a community. So, yeah, it'll be, it still remains to be seen, A, how we manage tourism from a policy and planning perspective, but also how we rethink the type of visitor activities we want in our communities in New Zealand. Yeah, there was some hope about, as you say, that regenerative or transformative tourism. And I was hopeful that it would prompt a wave of slow tourism. Yeah. Instead of dashing to Australia for, for a weekend, then we might see tourism as something we do over a month or more. Yeah, the slow tourism, um, and many of the listeners might be wondering, oh, okay, what are we talking about here? But when you're looking at our own tendency as New Zealanders to go and stay in one location, maybe we're second homeowners, maybe we are intergenerational campers who like going to the same campsite um, with our grandchildren, our children, intergenerationally, and we might have decades-long traditions of doing so, and we get a sense of place from being there within that community. Hopefully we get a sense of commitment and belonging and we start to look at ways of giving back to that community through being involved in that community in a way that's quite deep. And I'm talking about things such as being involved as maybe volunteers with environmental programs, looking at improving the actual quality of life in those areas. And I've been listening to the radio quite a bit recently and it's really sounding as if it could be very easy to trip back into that sort of mass tourism and host-guest separation type feeling of travel rather than really belonging to a place as a visitor. So it's such a complex thing. And it's something that we look at in the ecotourism class in terms of really in-depth educational experiences, learning about the environment, learning about how we can all contribute as kaitiaki to a place. 
bubble sprite of the forest of Orokanui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, nā mihi aroha nui ke koutou ko ho. I hope you're all having the best day, beautiful superstars in your beloved universes. And I really hope wherever you are and whatever's happening around you, this journey that we're all on together is proving to be very rewarding, very sustaining and illuminating for you more and more each day. Who you are, a triumph of nature's art perfect unique here making things better thank you so i know that for all of us we've been navigating a very interesting series of shifts and changes over the last more than a year together and as we have re-emerged back into relative freedom once more we can be so grateful to ourselves and each other for getting through this tricky time supporting each other to stay safe and stay well and today I'm working with the beautiful Kaikarai Primary School and we're thinking all about migration of our native birds and of people and how these two are connected and linked. And of course this got me thinking about how we as a species have spent so much time tuning in and following other species and their pathways, their life ways. It's inspired us greatly that we have co-evolved with all life in an infinite web over the last several billion years and here we find ourselves the great tool makers and tool creators learning to learn again from these other life forms around us so thinking about these concepts of navigation and migration of course this brings up many of our essential qualities that like all life we have a curiosity for the world around us like all life we have a desire to survive and to expand like all life we have the ability to observe the world around us see patterns and use our unique senses to follow these patterns like all life we must establish our own home our own territory we must find sources of nourishment food in so many different ways and like all life we must do our best to support those we love to proliferate whether this is individually proliferating or supporting those we know and love around us proliferate it's been very interesting for me to return to a classroom setting and really enjoy the enthusiasm and the exuberance of the beautiful young people that I get to work with and of course as we know there is that child within us all that is so curious so appreciative of the life that we have I know that for all of us, when we are having to navigate the wider world, the human world, it can be stressful, it can be hard. So if we can draw upon the wisdom of our ancestors, all life that has come before us, to reframe our individual journey as part of a great migration, a great navigation that we're all taking part in, not only in the physical world, but in the conceptual realm, the emotional realm, and all the learning that we are all doing individually feeds back into the collective learning of the whole, of the one consciousness. And how lucky we are that we are always able to contribute, that we are always contributing, whether we're conscious of this or not. And today we've been learning about the special ways that birds see the electromagnetic fields and how their unique eye forms allow them to do this. So of course, for me, this reminded me how we too can reframe and reorient our direction by listening to our inner knowing, our inner compass to find the right way home. So I really hope that for you, you're enjoying your navigation, your journeys, and I'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much. Kakiti. You're listening to Blowing Bubbles. We're talking with Anna Carr. 
listening to Tahu there from Orokanui. How are places such as Orokanui that are have a conservation goal but fund it through visitation? Tourism, yeah, they must have they must have really struggled during the the last year. Has it damaged the the conservation effort? Right, that's a big question too. Like when I look at it, of course they've had to have reduced opening days at Urokanui. However, I can see that also as breathing space for nature. So if you look at it from a, a holistic perspective, it's probably wonderful for the wildlife and the staff up there to actually have time to reflect and to actually get on with work without having to worry about managing a visitor experience. Um, on the bigger picture, I am aware of several nature-based tourism operations throughout the country who've had to rejig what they're doing. A fantastic example would be Nadine and Kao Toatoa up at Kohutapu Lodge up in the North Island, where they have actually been rejigging their nature lodge, which used to cater for backpackers and a variety of visitors, but they very much made it a community-oriented for Wānanga. They're hosting groups of rangatahi youth at risk. Um, I think with the opening of the duck shooting season, I noticed that they were hosting duck hunters. So they're looking at more of a domestic visitor. Um, VFR, visiting friends and relations, and so on. But when it comes back to our nature efforts, I think living in Dunedin is absolutely fantastic because you've also got all the other things that are happening with the town Greenbelt and groups being involved there. And when I'm talking about tourism, I'm actually looking at local tourism now. And it's not so much that you're a tourist, but you're a visitor in your own backyard and you're looking at how you can contribute to conservation efforts in your own backyard by actually seeing going to Aurokanui, going out to Pukukura penguins or the albatross colony, penguin place, supporting those local operators or supporting the wildlife species somehow, be it through a membership with the Yellow Eye Penguin Trust or with Aurokanui, or through helping with predator-free New Zealand initiatives and trapping programs. So there's all these other opportunities that we can sort of move our focus on going and having a, a holiday in the other countries to, okay, how can we make our own backyards, our own local areas benefit from what's been happening with our bubbles, restricting our travel? It was good to see the, the great New Zealand summer. I think everybody really appreciated it, mm. that even if you wouldn't have gone overseas, the fact you couldn't go overseas really did mean... You had to focus on enjoying yourself ourselves here. And as you were saying, there's a, a lot of those uh, operators did work quite hard on making it into a New Zealand, an experience for New Zealanders, not just dropping the price, but actually making it much more about the connection with the, the place. What do we need to do to make sure that that stays hmm. as the, the bubble widens and we start you know, we're hearing now about how many Australians we're going to get for the ski season. We've gone back to that mass market. We've gone back to those numbers. Do you think we'll keep some of that that home tourism flavour? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you've got always the bell curve and you've got the strong environmentally minded people at one end and people who are perhaps more economically 
oriented at the other and then you've got the general populace and you just hope that the bell curve in the middle there might be an, a gradual value change and reflection. I really think when it comes to what's happening with climate change and peak oil's not spoken about much as people start to turn towards perhaps greener energies, I think people are starting to really consider their patterns of travel behaviour. My big concern is that we seem to be highly consumptive these days. I kind of look at my own youth and pre-25, I never wanted to travel overseas. All I wanted to do was go tramping and climbing in New Zealand. And it was sort of my focus. I didn't see the need to go overseas. Perhaps I was really narrow-minded and didn't appreciate what our wonderful earth has to offer. But to me, I was quite content with what happens here and what I could do here. And so I've always been an avid walker, not so much since the bubble has happened in terms of going on tramping trips, but a lot of walking around the green belt, around the Maniototo and around the Twizel area with all the conservation parks. And I suppose we can't have everybody doing that as well, but just being more active and appreciating nature would be the ultimate. My, I, I suppose I see our love affair with the car, and I'm in a car. My father was a mechanic. He had a service station. It's really bizarre. But I do feel that we have to get on top of transport and emissions with our transport. If Dunedin can't do it and make ourselves a pedestrian cycle-friendly city, I think that's an indicator, it's a micro-indicator of the challenge we face with international travel. Now, I know that Sam's (laughs) raising his eyebrows, but as a sort of, you see Dunedin as being a sort of a green city, an environmentally conscious city. We're talking about pedestrianism, we're talking about cycleways, etc. If we can't do that here so that people feel safe biking from St Clair through to Normanby or North East Valley, or from Māori Hill down to the Polytech for work, then it's kind of an indicator of the fact that we are trapped in this mindset of, okay, we can jump in our cars and go from A to B. And then the next step from that is we'll jump in the plane and fly somewhere rather than looking at how our carbon footprint is just continuing to increase. But apparently we can shut down a country in two or three days. Mm. But we can't have cycleways. That's too hard. Yeah. Do you think we might have learnt from the pandemic that we can do stuff? Definitely. And um, gosh, there's a, a person who people might want to learn a bit more about. She has just recognised in the recent um, honours. Susan Crumdike from University of Canterbury, who specialises in transition engineering. And what we need to do to actually revert to more earth-friendly patterns of behaviour. So if anyone wants to go and do a bit of a Google, look at Professor Susan Crumdike at University of Canterbury with Transition Engineering. And we've I think talk, there are a few We've talked to her on her. Sustainable Lens. I shall get her on Blowing Bubbles as well. Definitely. You mentioned there the, the conservation parks. They're an interesting thing that I don't think people have noticed have happened because mm. they're kind of hidden away. They're, they've came from the tenure reforms. Essentially, the, the farmers swapped the, the tops for the ownership of the, the lower land. Yeah. 
but there's an awful lot of them, and we kind of haven't noticed that they've happened. The sign, you see the signs to them, but there's so many of them that I, I love going to those sorts of places, and I haven't been to most of them. Yeah, oh, and it's a it's a hidden jewel that we haven't discovered yet. It is, and and unfortunately, a lot of them you actually do need cars to access. So, um, we're at the Hariri Conservation Park over Easter, and it's quite a long drive up the valley from the turnoff between Omarama and the Lindis Pass and we were time short so we did take our car up there and then we camped and enjoyed the night sky and so on and we probably saw on average another three to four vehicles a day up there over the Easter period so it wasn't experiencing a huge number of visitors. Is the slip open? On the Ahariri Road Mm -hmm. you could get over it in my Subaru so, yeah, I've got an old Subaru Forester and it seemed to manage. <laughs> yeah. That's a good trick of keeping it so that people can't get there, having a great big slip in the entrance yeah, to it yeah, so you can't yeah. get in. No, it was pretty accessible, but it was absolutely beautiful when you were up there. It was so peaceful and quiet. However, yeah, looking at the night sky, we saw the sky train and numerous satellites. So, you know, that's the other thing that's happening with our, our planet, isn't it? Let's take the second of your music choices. Let's have Teeks Never Be Apart. Why this one? Oh, okay. A plug for a wonderfully successful young New Zealand musician. And I just have a great lot of caring and thought for all those people who are separated from their loved ones. We've got grandchildren over in San Francisco, family members all over the world. And so I just think that this speaks to a lot of people. Kira. Watch you slip away. Slip away through my fingers when you left. Oh, you took away some part of me. I think I needed. Though the pain in my heart, you'll always be part of me. Wherever I go, I'll always know that you're near. In the tears from my eyes, in the stars in the sky, in the depth of my thoughts, I will find you. In the morning sun, in the place we were young. Just to see your face in my dreams. 
Interesting. Lots of work done by various organisations up there. And of course, they've got Te Manuhana, the Department of Conservation Project River Recovery, kind of the, the modern day version, doing fabulous work with biodiversity. The Wilding Pine issue in the Mackenzie has really come to the forefront since the Ohau fires and the fire on the Araki Mount Cook Road last year so people are really conscious of the change in the actual climate but also in terms of the the dominance of wilding pine and in the Mackenzie area and anyone who remembers it from the 80s would probably get a bit of a shock if they hadn't driven through that area in the last five years because of a number of wilding pines spreading throughout that previous sort of dry grassland area. Uh, I know that dairying's an issue in the Mackenzie, naturally, and it has had a huge impact on the waterways. But to me, my big fear is actually the wilding pine issue and the need to have it under control. So just recently, over the last few weeks, they've been doing quite a bit of control around Lake Pukaki, and of course there's been a number of social media posts where people are lamenting the removal of wilding pine because they see it as adding to the scenery, the picturesque views of the lake, and they don't realise, well, actually those trees do not belong there. It's another area where, you know, we've got kofi, we've got harakeki, we've got all these wonderful plant species that could actually be put in the forefront of images we take to promote that sort of landscape from a tourism perspective. Instead, we have Russell Lupin and we have our lakes now surrounded by pines. So that's another interesting one that I'm actually going to be talking a little bit about at the Hocken in November when it cool. comes to our changing landscape and our changing perceptions of what should be within the landscape. And wilding pines are central to that, as are, as are Russell Lupin. Because the pines are just the wrong shape for starters. They're, they're, they're the wrong shape. They're, they're <laughs> triangular, and our trees aren't triangular. Yeah, it makes my heart ache for the loss of our natural indigenous biodiversity. It really does. But also the scenery. I mean, I started working up at Araki Mount Cook in the mid-1980s, and I remember... In those days you hitchhiked, and I'd hitchhike from the turn-off down at the very eastern end of Lake Pukaki up the Araki Mount Cook Road and not see any pine trees other than the shelter belts at Ventana Station and Ferentosh. 
And now, of course, that entire area at that turnoff is wilding pine. And we used to go there and hunt rabbits because it was all just grassland. Not all native grassland, of course. It was introduced grasses and hyracium was the issue then. But, um, yeah, the, that loss of that golden feeling to the landscape is something that I personally am having to adjust to. And we have our loppers in the car and we try and get out there when we can and lop off wilding pines when we see them at the side of a road in public places. We've seen lots of societal change over the last year. I used to say the last few months and it's gone past the last year. Yeah. Over the last year... What do you think is going to stick? And more importantly, what do you hope will stick? Hmm. What I hope will stick is appreciation of family and friends and realising how important our social connections are. And, I, you know, COVID really made people realise when they're separated from family and friends how much they miss the relationships that they have, how dear family members are to them. The other thing I hope will stick is that appreciation of nature. Like We absolutely loved the bird life in the town belt, but also at home. We ended up getting a, a sugar feeder for parts of the year where there weren't as many plants flowering or berries and um, were highly entertained by the increase in tui and bellbird in our backyard, not to mention piwakawaka fantail and silver eye and so on, kiriru. So bird life, I hope bird life sticks around Dunedin. Not two in bellbird at the same time because they fight. They do, and they're so territorial. It's really interesting. We're lucky we've got half our backyard is regenerating regenerating native bush, and so we hope that there's space for them there. Yeah. Um, I'm really inspired by the flourishing of the arts and creativity and music that seems to have come out, even though there's been music venues really affected by COVID, at the same time I've really took in quite a few online performances that were streamed live. And yeah, I think it's been a blessing in that way to actually be able to see artists able to reach maybe new audiences and bigger audiences online. I hope that sticks around, and I hope supporting the arts sticks around. You talked before about climate change and peak oil. What do you think we can take for those bigger challenges from what we've learnt from how we've dealt with COVID? Hmm. Well, as you mentioned before, it shows that if you really have the mindset, major changes can be implemented quickly, at the same time, there'll be potential backlash from the public in terms of, well, is it impinging on my human rights or not? It would be fantastic to see the momentum around um, having more nature-friendly transport options supported by councils and actually make them realise the need to commit to enabling people to walk and bike around our cities. And I know I sound like a, a repeating record here, but I would love to see Dunedin to be a place where I could see my grandchildren off on their bikes from Brockville. And it is a steep hole, but wouldn't it be great if they could bike 
down to high school at Logan Park or wherever they end up going or to the harbour cycleways without me having to worry about their well-being on the road. That would be the greatest change in my mind for Dunedin. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> I feel like we're so midway through this pandemic. I don't even know if we're halfway through it. But it is an opportunity to change and reset. And perhaps the ratepayer's voice needs to be stronger in that area. The days I bring my car into work, it's because I want to go up to the swimming pool mm-hmm. during the day. And I couldn't bring the car in today. And I've got a doctor's appointment up at yeah. Roslyn Village. And I worked out that there was a bus to Roslyn Village from, from work. It goes past the swimming pool. I hadn't realised this. It's just changed my life. I am not bringing the car in ever again. Yeah. Because I don't need to. Yep. Yep. I have some questions to end the show with. What is the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? Oh, I think finding time for family and spending time with my grandchildren. It can be quite difficult when you're spreading time around work and life during a bubble where you can't actually travel to see people in alert level four. So as soon as that bubble could expand, we expanded it to the grandkids up in Brockville and my daughter and her husband up in Brockville. That to me was a huge achievement for our family. I know it doesn't sound that immense, but opening up that family relationship again was really important. People were talking about naming the day, I've forgotten what the day was, National Takeaways Day, because it was the day we could get takeaways. I, as far as I was concerned, we should be having a national holiday, National Hugs Day. Yeah, National Hugs Day would be great. <laughs> national Hugs Day, and then the next thing, of course, as soon as I saw my grandchildren, it was up to see my father. And I've become really conscious of the lack of support for people who are retired, especially the more elderly retired in their 80s and 90s, maybe centenarians, and you know the need to really treasure these people who have gone through so much in life and have probably been more confused because they're not computer users. They haven't been able to embrace maybe the online world. So really appreciating and helping them is something that I've become aware of the need for too. We're writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our team of people doing good work. So you are in the team. What's your superpower? What's got you into the mansion? Oh, superpower. Okay. I suppose for me, I look back on my life and I've always had a passion for the environment. I've always had a passion for bird life and native plants and rongoa. I grew up in a national park. I lived in a national park till my early 30s. And enthusiasm for the outdoors, maybe, is my superpower. Do you consider yourself to be an activist? At times, yes, I can be quite outspoken when I see a need, when I've got the energy. So what motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What motivates me? Definitely, again, um, going back to my daughters and my grandchildren and family. It used to be our pets. Sadly, over the last summer, we lost our, um, our elderly dog and our elderly cat. And they're always a, a great force to get you out of bed in the morning. 
But yeah, I'm a very family oriented person, so key motivation. So what challenge are you looking forward to in the next year or so? Oh, getting fit. So despite all that walking, um, as I age, and I'm in my late 50s now, I feel that I am not where I was in my mid-40s, and I'd really like to actually have more opportunity to get into long-distance biking and long-distance hiking. My hero of the year would be um, Philippa Pehi, Dr Pip Pehi, who has just finished walking Te Araroa. It's her third walk of the entire length of the country that she's undertaken and to me that would be a challenge to aspire to. We've had several people on the show doing those sorts of things, doing cycling the yeah. length of the country or what's Billy, Billy's um, doing a triathlon, yep. the, the whole country, 6,000 kilometres, not spending very much time on main roads. No. I mean, that's the slow tourism that I love to see people undertaking, but I'm also also conscious that you have to have a level of fitness and a probably financial security to be able to do that. But yeah, that would be the thing I'd like to get into. And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? Advice for your listeners? Um, start getting your garden ready for winter. Start thinking and planning ahead for maybe vegetable gardening for summer, even if it's only a couple of pots that you put out on your balcony or have in a window. But yeah, get into gardening. Thank you very much for that. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Sam. It was a pleasure. Let's go out to Julie Collier Mackenzie. Perfect. Over a hundred years ago, a legend came to be. Where's 
safe spaces around the world brought to you by the sustainable lens team which is brought to you by otago polytechnic we broadcast on otago access radio every monday wednesday and friday afternoons at three and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz you can find us on facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts we had a contribution today from Tahu Mackenzie. I'm Samuel Mann at otago polytechnic in Dunedin and I have been joined by Anna Carr That was Blowing Bubbles. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.